We are in a series. If you haven't been around Journey in the last couple of weeks, we're in a series called Messy Church. And that is quite literal in the physical, uh, that things are just every week you come in here and there's a little more mess. I promise you next week will be the messiest. So uh, just watch out for next week. It's, it's about to get really messy in this place. But uh, we're not just talking about a physical mess. We're talking about just the messiness of our lives and the messiness of, you know, when you, if, you're, if you live all by yourself in a shack out in the forest and you never have to interact with humanity, you probably don't see too many messes. But as soon as you start adding other human beings into the mix, life gets messy in a hurry, doesn't it? And uh, so we're just talking about the, the messiness of life and then also looking at the first 30 years of the church after Jesus' death and his resurrection after he ascended to heaven. We have a record in the Bible, an account, a biography of those first 30 years called the book of Acts. And so we're slowly kind of walking our way through the book of Acts and we're looking at the awesomeness and, and ways that God encountered people in the book of Acts, but also looking at the fact that a lot of it was pretty messy. And just calling out the messes and, and talking about what kind of messes we should expect as God moves in our lives. And so two weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapters 1 and 2. Last week, we looked at Acts chapters 3 and 4. Today, we're going to be in Acts chapter 5. And so I would love for you to turn to that in your own Bibles, to Acts chapter 5. And I'm going to give you plenty of time to find this. So if you're someone who's like, man, I don't know where any of that stuff is in my Bible, we're going to give you plenty of time. You can go to the table of contents, or if uh, you're using an app on your phone, uh, sometimes you can even click on that alphabetical listing of the books of the Bible, and that helps you because it's like one of the first ones right there. But um, as you're turning to that, I have a confession to make. And uh, several, uh, some time ago when I was in prayer, I was, you know, doing my prayer thing, and I have kind of like this outline of how I pray, and in the middle of prayer, I sensed the Holy Spirit. This wasn't out loud. It was just a thought. It was a prompting, and the Holy Spirit reminded me of a conversation I had had the previous day, and in that conversation, I had lied, like just flat out lied in the middle of this conversation, and, and it, wasn't a lie to, it wasn't a lie to cover up, you know, some previous sin or some failure in my life. It Honestly, it was a lie of exaggeration. It was a lie of, of making myself appear better than I was. I know everyone's looking at me shocked. You're like, I would never do that. Okay? <laughs> Thank you for those looks of shock right now. <laughs> like, like, I'm going to find a different church next week. But, you know, in that moment, I knew, I knew the Holy Spirit was bringing that to my mind, not because the Holy Spirit um, doesn't like me, not because, you know, he's a killjoy. He brought that to my mind because... If I continue in that vein, if I continue to sin with duplicity, with exaggeration, with deceit, with lying, it, it strains my relationship with him and it strains my relationship with others. Can they trust me? Am I really a person of my word? Can I, can I really be counted on? And what I, what I realized is that I, I repented of that in that moment. And, and what I realized though is that we live in a culture, and I didn't just realize this, okay, but we live in a culture of image management. Like, and, and, and isn't it interesting how consumed we are with ourselves and how I look and what are people thinking about me instead of thinking about what God thinks about me and God's opinion of me? And I'll give you an example of this. If you've ever been on social media, have you ever, you know, looked at your notifications and you find out that someone posted a picture of you and they tagged you in the picture and when you open it up as a group picture and who is the first person that you look for in that group picture? It's always yourself, isn't it? Like, you don't go, oh, how beautiful my grandmother looks in this picture. Like, the first thing you do is you look at yourself, and if it's a picture that's unflattering, some of you even untag yourself. It's like, I don't want anybody else to see that, right? Like, 
Like we live in a time of filters and editing and cropping and we want ourselves to look just right. And, and again, it goes to this issue and, and there's, you know, some of that, there's, I, I, you know, I, I do some of that, but, but the, the question becomes why? Like what's the motivation here? And very quickly, we can be guilty of duplicity. We can be guilty and you say, well, that's not a sin. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. In fact, the Bible actually uses a really harsh word for this, and it's the word hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. In fact, a lot of people will say, I don't go to church because they're just a bunch of hypocrites. Have you ever heard someone say that? So we're going to talk a little bit about hypocrisy. We're going to talk a little bit about duplicity because we find this very clear in Acts chapter 5. George MacDonald puts it this way. He says, half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. And that's the sin that we're guilty of. In fact, hypocrisy, when you look at the literal definition of hypocrisy, it's wearing a mask or playing an actor. At its essence, it is pretending to be something or someone that I really am not. I, I was looking at this issue of, of, of hypocrisy and trying to get a better grasp of it, a better understanding, and there's an author who's written like volumes of commentaries on the Word of God, and, and in this particular passage, uh, Warren Wearsby says this about hypocrisy. This, this was by far, this just hit me. He says, we must not think that failure to reach our ideals is hypocrisy. Listen very carefully to me. Everybody in this room fails. Everybody in this room sins. Everybody in this room is broken and has broken relationships. That's not hypocrisy. And I, I need you to be very clear about this or you won't listen to the rest of the sermon. The enemy will just be condemning you the whole rest of the time. That's not hypocrisy. He goes on, he says, we must not think that the failure to reach our ideals is hypocrisy because no believer lives up to all that he or she knows or has in the Lord. Here's the key line. He says, hypocrisy is deliberate deception. Trying to make people think we are more spiritual than we really are. And if you read through the Gospels, if you read through Jesus' interactions, you will find that Jesus hated hypocrisy. Now to someone who is broken and awareness of the brokenness, Jesus had mercy all day long. But who is he the harshest towards? The ones who would walk around as if they were God's gift to this world, acting like they had never sinned, looking down their noses to others with sin, those are the ones that Jesus didn't have very kind words to say. He'd say, look at you, bunch of whitewashed tombs. You look all nice on the outside, but inside you're brimming with death, decay. Now, fortunately, we're not the first people to struggle with du duplicity, with, with hypocrisy. And we're going to look in Acts chapter 5 in just a moment, but to set the scene so you kind of know, you know, otherwise we're, it's going to be like starting a movie in the middle. So let me kind of bring us up to speed. Jesus has already died and risen from the dead. He's already ascended to the Father, and now we're several months into the future, and, and the church is growing. What started with just a couple hundred people is now, I mean, thousands, tens of thousands of people have become believers, have become followers of Jesus, and, and because of that, they have very quickly gotten the attention. They had already gotten the attention of the religious elite within the Judaism uh, temple worship system, but now they're starting to get the attention of the Roman Empire and Roman officials. And so you have this weight of persecution that comes from two different sides, from the temple and from the empire. And, and the people of God, the, the, the followers of Jesus, are scattering because they're experiencing incredible persecution. 
And we're not just talking about persecution where someone calls them a bad name. We're talking about like, like property being confiscated. Like, um, I don't know what's going on back there. <laughs> Why don't you say put, all right? Uh, so property's being confiscated, and uh, people are being imprisoned, and people are being executed. And, and what's happening is, so you have, you have these people who are experiencing this, and, and, and they're losing everything. Families are turning on them, saying, you're no longer my son. They don't even have food to eat because they're losing their jobs. They can't support themselves. And then you have others within this uh, community of Jesus followers who still have great resources. And so what happens, you see this very clearly in the end of chapter 4, you see at the end of chapter 2 as well, is that people start selling their property so that they can help support their brothers and sisters who literally don't have food to eat. There's no, there's no safety net. There's no, you know, the systems that our government has in place. They don't have any of that back then. And so to literally save their brothers and sisters in Christ who are starving to death, they start selling property, and, and the church celebrates in the unity of this. And in the end of chapter 4, we see the last two verses, we see an example of this. And, and I know you're going, Ken, when are we going to get to chapter 5? This really is helpful for us to understand what we're about to read. In chapter 4, uh, it says in verse 36, For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus, and he sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. So we have an example of this, and, and this is really to help us to understand what we're about to read. So think about this. you got this guy named Joseph, and he is such an encourager in the church that they say, hey, we're not calling you Joey anymore. We're calling you Barnabas. You're an encourager. Like, like and in their language, it literally was like, hey, you're not Joey anymore. You're an encourager. You're such an encourager. You know anybody like that? Someone who's just always encouraging you. And to such an extent that he would sell his property and bring the full amount. And, 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 and the church rejoiced. They celebrated. And it wasn't about him. It was about what God was doing in their midst and the fellowship and the unity that they were enjoying. The very next verse, chapter 5, verse 1. And remember, when the Bible was written, there weren't chapter headings. There weren't chapter numbers and verse numbers. This was all one flowing account. So we don't miss a beat here. Verse 1 of chapter 5 says, But there was a certain man named Ananias, who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. And Ananias brought part of the money to the apostles. Okay, this is key. He brought part of the money to the apostles Here's the next phrase, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. So let's just, let's just pause right there. So, so this dude, Ananias, along with his wife, they both kind of conspire and do this together. They look at what's going down with Barnabas. They look at how Barnabas is being celebrated. They look at how, you know, the church is all talking about Barnabas. I think Ananias and Sapphira are at home one day, and they're just going, we're sick of hearing about Barnabas. You know, it's not even his real name. His real name is Joseph. Like, who does this guy think he is? Did you see him last week? He brought all that money. Did you see how people were celebrating that? Did you see how there's even a group of people crying because they couldn't believe that generosity? Like, I'm so sick of that guy. She's like, I'm sick of him too. Like, we, we're generous. Sapphira, you serve in the nursery every stinking Sunday. They're not putting pictures of you in the lo lobby, right? Like I, mean, like, I mean, this stuff happens, doesn't it? It's amazing how the enemy gets in and the bitterness and how we start questioning other people's motives and like how quickly we can go into attack mode. And I could, this isn't all in the Bible, I'm making some of this up, but I could just imagine that there's this sense of like, we're generous, we give, 
And I, I can just, I don't know who's, who came up with the idea first. I don't know if it was Ananias or Sapphira, but one of them goes, you know, we have this piece of property. Why don't we do what Barnabas did? And one of them looked at the other and said, we can't afford to give that whole amount. Well, what if we sell it and let's say we get 50 grand for it. Let's go to the church and tell them that we got 25 grand and that we're giving all 25 grand and they won't know the difference and they'll celebrate us and they'll hoist us up on their shoulders and they'll have you know, a celebration for us. And they look at each other and they go, that's the plan. This, this is gonna be perfect, right? So, so here's the deal, they conspired. They talked about it before it happened. John Stott says this, he says, they wanted the credit and the prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. So in order to gain a reputation to which they had no right, they told a brazen lie. And their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their own ego. And the duplicity is on the outside, they would appear to be just like Barnabas, yet they couldn't be any more different than Barnabas, right? Now what happens next? I just got to warn you, like put on your seatbelt. There are parts of the Bible that are harsh. There are parts of the Bible that we read and, and I don't take delight in what we're about to read. I don't think this is, a, I, this is just what happened. And I need to give you a disclaimer, this happened after Jesus. This isn't Old Testament stuff. This is after Jesus' death, after his resurrection, after his ascension. So everybody ready? Put on your big boy pants here. Then Peter, who is like the pastor of the church, he's a leader of the church, so they come in, Ananias goes, here I am, and gives this amount, and he's high-fiving people, and Peter goes, wait, 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 wait. Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell, as you wish. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. Peter's saying, listen, you didn't have to do this. No one was twisting your arm. Nobody said, hey, you guys need to go and sell your property and bring the full amount. He said, this was all your deal. You would have been fine to walk in and say, hey, we sold our property, and here's some of the money that we received. He said, we would have been cool with that. That would have been fine. Then he says this. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. Ananias, you were lying to God. Like a few, a few moments before that, Peter said, you lied to the Holy Spirit. No, the Holy Spirit isn't just this ethereal, you know, like Casper the friendly ghost just kind of like floating around in the cosmos. Like the Holy Spirit is just as much God as God the Father and God the Son. The Holy Spirit can be lied to. Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Like, like we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can lie to the Holy Spirit. And here's what makes this even worse is that the Holy Spirit had been with them the whole time. When they, when they went out and pounded that for sale sign in their property, the Holy Spirit was there. When they were in the conference room of the bank signing the papers, you know, with those nice pens that they give you when you do that, and the Holy Spirit was there. When they were sitting at their kitchen table conspiring about this whole deal and talking through what they were going to do and what they were going to say and are you with me, the Holy Spirit was there. And as Ananias was walking to church that Sunday morning, 
The Holy Spirit was there convicting him, poking his conscience, saying, come on, don't do this, Ananias. Don't do what you're about to do. And he did it anyway. He, he didn't just lie to Peter. He didn't just lie to a congregation. He lied to God. He lied to the Holy Spirit. And some of you are about this time, you're going, why did I come to church today? <laughs> right? Think about it. On the outside, we can be doing everything right, and yet on the inside, we can be so far from God. And the scary thing is that nobody can tell. Because in the kingdom of God, there's no locked doors, there's no deleted computer files, there's no hidden closets. God sees the entirety of your life. He sees what nobody else sees. He sees into the heart of the matter. So about this time, some of you are like, okay, are you going to tell us why God did this? Like, why, why did God allow their sin to, like, Get them in this moment. Well, wait a second. I'm, I'm moving ahead of the story. Thank you, Carrie. Verse 5, as soon as, some of you are like, well, what happened? I mean, they lied, but what happened? Here's about, as soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. That's what happened. <laughs> Ananias died in church after lying to God. That's what happened. He fell to the floor and died Everyone who heard about it was terrified. No, duh. <laughs> right? Like you're like, oh, look at the time. I think I need to be leaving. <laughs> then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. And I wish I could tell you that the story was over because that's horrible, right? Like, I mean, from our perspective, we look at that and we go, how in the world could God allow that to happen, right? That's not the end of it. Verse 7 about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. And instantly, she fell to the floor and died. And when the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who had heard what had happened. Okay, so now you're wondering, <laughs> why did God allow their sin to kill them? Like, is it, like, this is in the Bible? Like, no one ever preached this to me in VBS. You know, you don't read this. This isn't a bedtime story that you tell your kids, like, before they go to bed. Hey, let me read you a story from the Bible. <laughs> and they buried them. Good night. <laughs> what? Why did God allow their sin to kill them? I, I think of several reasons. It, it might, I, I think, first of all, their deaths were a sign. Because obviously God doesn't kill every person who lies or who deceives or who exaggerates. Aren't you grateful for that? Hallelujah, Hallelujah right? The death of Ananias and Sapphira is a picture, though, of how intensely God feels about duplicity. And you say, well, what's the big deal? It fractures relationships. It, not only does it fracture our relationship with God, it, it destroys our relationship with each other. In your marriage, if you can't trust your spouse, how strong is your marriage? 
Not strong at all. See, God knows how dangerous this is. And in this story, he, he allows this to happen to show us, hey, this is serious stuff. It's serious. I think the second thing is they had seen an incredible display of the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, we don't know for sure. We know there were 120 in the upper room on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came upon this group of people. I wonder, were Ananias and Sapphira among those 120? Several chapters later in Acts chapter 4, after Peter and John had been arrested, remember that story we talked about last week? After they had been arrested, the church gathered together and began praying. And they didn't pray a prayer of protection. They didn't say, oh God, save us from all this persecution. They actually were praying, God, in the midst of this persecution, grant us boldness to preach your word. And the Holy Spirit fell on that place, and it says the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And I wonder if Ananias and Sapphira had been there for that. They had tasted of the glory of God. They had encountered the power of the Holy Spirit for them personally. And you know what? We, we pray. I pray, God, we want to see your glory. God, we want to see a third great awakening for our nation. We all feel it in our bones that if God doesn't do something, like we, 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 we are disturbed about the future of our country. And, and, and they had experienced the glory of God. They had seen this. When we pray for those things, when we pray, God, we want to encounter you, we want to see your glory, just know that one of the things that happens when God moves in a powerful way like that is sin is revealed. The best example I can give you is, is I was driving here this morning, about 7 o'clock is when I left the house, and the sun is just in the, I mean, it's just amazing how much brighter the mornings are getting, right? And, and so I'm driving here, and I drive from like the Clyde area, and you know, I have a great drive, and I turn onto 19, and everything's good, and then I turn into the church parking lot, and the sun is literally like right there, right? I mean, that moment when you're like trying to flip the visor down and trying to find your sunglasses, you ever see? But here's what I became aware of, is my windshield like the whole drive here, my windshield is fine. As soon as I drove into the sun, like I realized my windshield is gross. <laughs> like it's nasty, right? Like I need to wash this windshield. I mean, not just the outside, like the inside, right? Like, like it, everything looked fine until I turned into the light of the sun. And here's the thing about Ananias and Sapphira. Like they had, I mean, they had experienced the glory of God and I believe God had convicted them and yet they kept doing what they wanted to do, kept living the way that they wanted to live. So can you imagine how people were walking into the church after this? <laughs> you know, Aaron, Aaron mentioned earlier, I mean, this is a bunch of fishermen, right? This is a bunch of fishermen, right? You guys getting it yet? Like they come into church and they're like, I was out in Galilee the, yesterday and man, you should have seen the size of it. Never mind. Just never, never mind. Like, like, after this happened, like, imagine how they walked into church. There's no exaggeration. There was no lying after this. It says in verse 11, great fear seized or gripped the church. And I believe one of the reasons why the church in the United States of America is in such decline in every metric tells us that it is. It's one of the reasons is we've lost the fear of God. I'm going to define that in a moment because some of you really have issues with that phrase, the fear of the Lord. But basically, we have, we have invented a religion where God is just like our little buddy. You say, hey, little buddy, I want to talk to you today. And 
I want to tell you all the things that I want you to do today while I'm working, little buddy. Here's your list, and I expect results. And if you don't give me results, I'm going to go to a different church. I'm going to believe in a different God. I'm going to stop believing in you, little buddy. Like we, we treat God flippantly. We've lost the fear of the Lord. You know, the most repeated commandment in Scripture is fear not, do not fear. And yet, the juxtaposition is the second most repeated commandment in Scripture is fear the Lord. And we get confused by that, right? Like, okay, you tell me not to fear, but then you tell me to fear you. Here's what, when, it, when Scripture talks about the fear of the Lord, it is talking about an immense respect, an immense honor, an immense reverence for one. The, the, the best example I can give you personally from my life, and I'm sorry for all, all the younger people in this room, you won't know who I'm talking about, some of the older people will, but I remember, I remember walking to a room once, and I had been around, I, I told the story in the first service last week, but I, I had it, uh, my junior year of high school I spent in Washington, D.C. working for the House of Representatives and literally worked on the floor of the House, and so I was around a lot of, seen presidents, former presidents, been around a lot of like, important people, but I remember going into a room once, and Colin Powell walked in the room. And Colin Powell at that point was not political. No one knew what political party he was, but he was a general that you didn't mess with. And I remember, I remember when Colin Powell walked in the room, it was the only time in my life that I've experienced this, like there was a great sense of reverence and awe. I mean, even more so than the president. Like he walked in this room and there was just a sense of, like the room got quiet. They listened to him. They listened to what he was having to say. Now, again, all the younger people, you can Google Colin Powell later on. I promise you, he's just an incredible, incredible person. Here's what I'm trying to say. Our God is so much greater. I mean, no comparison. And yet, sometimes we just treat him flippantly. We think we can hide things from him. We think that he doesn't know what's going on. We think he doesn't see. We need to have a reverence. And all. Now, if you're here and you're humble and you recognize your sin and you're torn up inside of you because of it and you love God and you're trying to serve him and there's these things that keep sucking you back, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. Because you get it and you're crying out to God and you don't care what anybody else around you knows about it, right? That, that's not what this is. What, we're, what we have going on here is smug, self-righteous people who their desire is to have the spotlight on them and they look down their noses at everybody else, and they can see the sin in everybody else, but they can't see the sin inside themselves. They're not seeing or confessing their own brokenness. So my question is, are you hiding something from God? We get so used to doing that in our human relationships that we think we can do that, but are you hiding something from God? Is there something going on in your life that, that you have not confessed before him? God wants us to stop with the acting. He wants us to be honest. Some of you have been wondering about these vessels here. No, this is not my grandma and my grandpa. Uh, that would be horrendous. <laughs> Thought about it, but. So, in the, time, in the times 2,000 years ago, obviously containers were uh, mostly pottery. And so, very common, I mean, they didn't have paper bags, they didn't have the plastic containers that we have. And so, what would happen, though, if, if you were a pottery maker, it wasn't uncommon that you would create a piece, and you would realize later that there was a, a crack in it. There was a, a, 
you know, some kind of crevice. And, and so in order to still be able to sell their pottery, what they would do is they would coat it with wax. Other pottery makers who actually had integrity began stamping their pottery on the bottom with two Latin words, the words sen sere, without wax. It's the word that we now translate sincere. The word sincere literally means without wax. The word sincere means I'm not trying to hide something. There's not something going on, you know, in this part of my life. No, this is who I am. Most of all, it's being sincere with God. God, here's my brokenness. Here I am. Here's the struggles. God, apart from you, I am nothing. I am broken. I am helpless. I am powerless. I need you more than I'm even aware of in this moment. I need you. God is calling you and I to live sincere lives, lives that are without wax. So thankfully, the story of Ananias and Sapphira is not normative meaning this is never repeated again in the book of Acts or elsewhere in the New Testament. But it is a warning shot. And the question is, are you walking in God's grace? Are you readily admitting when you trip up, repentant over your brokenness? Or have you become hardened to your own sin and have decided just to put on a front, to put on an act, to act like all is well? Some of you right now, you're going, okay, how, how do I not do that? I think in closing, I want to read you a passage of scripture from Psalm 32. This is penned by a guy named David. David was a man who was thoroughly acquainted with brokenness. David was a man who did some of the most horrendous sins. Like if you look through the Ten Commandments, he broke them all. Even the murder one, even the adultery one. But yet scripture still calls him a man after God's own heart. And the reason why is if you read through his songs, many of the psalms in the Bible are songs written by David. What you'll see is a man who didn't have any problem saying, God, I've sinned against you. God, I've messed up. God, I don't deserve your grace. And in Psalm 32, he writes these words. He says, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. You know, there's... If you didn't know, there's great joy in having your sins forgiven. There's the greatest joy. When you don't have to hide anything, when you don't have to invent lies to cover up the lies that you've already told. He says, yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. You know, when we hide this stuff, it affects our physical bodies. Several years ago, probably about 15 years ago, the Cleveland Clinic actually did a study. You know, when we're hiding things, people who are cheating on their spouses and, and, it's a, and, and they're keeping it secret, that stuff will affect you physically. He says, day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. 
Therefore, let all the godly pray to you while there is still time, that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. For you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. The Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. This is what God wants for you. He wants to lead you and guide you along the best pathways of your life. This sermon is not meant so you go home feeling horrible about yourself. This sermon is meant so that you access life that you've never known before. The best pathways of life come from repentance before God. Probably my favorite verse in what I just read is verse 7. David says, you are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs of victory. And this brings us all the way back to the cross of Jesus. How can I have forgiveness of sins? Jesus went to the cross willingly to take upon himself the punishment that you and I deserve. And when we sin, we cry out to him and he literally hides us in his blood. Our sins are removed. We don't have to carry them with us. You don't have to walk out of these doors carrying the same luggage of sin and guilt and condemnation that you walked in the doors with. He has forgiveness available for you. So I want to speak to several different groups. Maybe you're here and you've never started following Jesus. This morning, you're saying, Ken, honestly, it has nothing to do with your sermon since I walked through these doors, like I, I feel like this, I need to be right with God. I would say to you in a moment, we're going to give an invitation. I would say, come. Come. Confess your sin to God. Ask him to forgive you and to be the master and leader of your life, and he will. He'll forgive you. He'll He'll forgive you. Maybe you're here and you've been a follower of Jesus. And maybe you've been following Jesus for so long that it just becomes routine. It feels like you've just been going through the motions and, and there's been sin and there's been stuff going on in your life and you haven't been honest with God about it. And you say, Ken, I need a reset. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to come. And when you come, I just want you to just get with God. It's just you and him and just say, God, forgive me. Lead me. Cleanse me. Maybe for you, there's no sense of, hey, I'm, I'm good. Like, I'm doing things right with God. I'm going to ask you to pray and to not judge. Because the greatest opposition to someone coming forward in a moment is going to be this. What will everybody think about me? <laughs> I'm not going to go forward. People are going to think I'm like cheating on my wife or something. My wife is going to wonder why I'm going forward. She's going to ask me on the car ride home. I don't even know why. I just feel like I need to go up. I don't even, there's not even anything like at the top of my mind, but I know I need to. Don't worry what anybody thinks about you. And if you're not, if this isn't something for you, that's fine. I, I believe for a, probably a, a majority of the room, it's just going to be just sitting here and just having a time of prayer, having a time of introspection. Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. So for you, maybe this is just a time of just saying, God, would you search me? 
So if you need to come, you need to respond to God's grace for you. You need to just find a dip. You know, you say, well, why do I need to go up there? It's just a change of place. It's a change. In the church I grew up in, we called this the altar. And it was a place of just putting down some things, sacrificing some things. So Carrie's going to keep playing. We're going to give us about three, four, maybe five minutes. Pastor Aaron will come up at the end and, and close in prayer. And it's going to be kind of awkward. And some of you are going to feel like you need to come, but you're not going to see anybody else coming, so you're going to stay seated. Just, just come. Just come.
Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence. God, may we never may we never take for granted who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that our lives would be marked sincere for you. God, where there where we have applied the uh, the the social wax, God, may your presence burn that away. Lord, as painful as it as it is, reveal our impurities, reveal, reveal our flaws, not so that we can stay and wallow there, but that so that you can continue to move us closer into your presence. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for your challenge. Help us to be willing to surrender. Strong enough to kneel before you. We ask these things in your name, Lord. Amen. Amen. Man, just the presence of God is awesome. I was having a conversation with one of the uh, construction guys here uh, the other week, and we were just kind of talking about some of the cool things that God's doing and and he just looked at me and was like God's cool and I was like yeah man he is God is I think that's I I love that like for me I'm like yeah God's cool and not flippantly like God is he does cool stuff I'm like God do cool stuff in me 